Welcome to Escape from Plan A. This is Teen. Got a uh, special returning guest, Carl Za. Carl, how's it going, man? Hey, what's up, Teen? What's with your username, FPA? Oh, that's Escape from Plan A. That's our like official. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just our official account. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Um, oh, so you're finally back home now in Bali. You've been traveling a lot lately. You've been in America. You've been in the U.S. You were in China. You were back in the U.S. You were on the East Coast. You're on the West Coast. You were everywhere. Um, now you're settled back in. I'm, I'm back home. This is where I belong, man. I'm back to yeah. my island. <laughs> Wait, so so where exactly? I'm just curious. Where exactly in Bali are you? Uh, uh, so I'm on the east coast of Bali, uh, near this uh, famous uh, surf beach called Karamas. I mean that that's the reason I moved to Bali. I moved here for surfing. Um, yeah. Although I'm not surfing right now because I just broke my surfboard like a few days ago. I saw. Yeah, I'm a big. So, what do you, did you give it a wave. proper burial or what? <laughs> no, I think I'm gonna hang it up on the wall. Hang it up on the wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, and then I'm trying to get my friends back in California, trying to recommend me some uh, shaper surfboard shapers in Bali, so I can get a new one. Uh, nice. Getting getting nice. cabin fever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we were uh, you, me, and John, who may or may not jump on at some point. We've got it's a little bit more difficult to schedule this now since we're all over. He's in Hangzhou now and stuff, but you, the three of us, we did our our continuing uh, America Watchers Twitter space, which I really enjoy doing, by the way. And um, but I, I'm like an idiot. I forgot to hit record, <laughs> and actually, I flipped the record switch, but then went back to edit the title. And if you go back to edit the title, oh, it resets everything. That's that's wow. what happens. Wow. Um, okay. That's forty a billion dollar investment. Yeah, because that was a that was a great great episode too. That was a great space. Right. Lost in time forever, but yes, it was good. And um, uh, and our you know it was like the you you know how like we have like a we see this like a recurring guest list now. Like it's the same, sim- very familiar set of people will drop in, and um, and we had a good talk. But unfortunately, and I wanted, wanted to release it as a podcast, but we didn't uh, we didn't record it. So we figured we we'd, we'd uh, loop back into just doing recording a podcast directly and releasing it that way. But we, you know, we went on for like two and a half hours. I don't know if we we don't need to go that that long. No, but, but, it, but I think we should keep to the theme of our space, which was yes. a reverse of you know outsider looking into America. You know, we had there's a long history of that. There was uh, you know most recently we had the Wang Huilin from China who wrote in 1990s about America versus America, uh, you know, a little older, you have Tocqueville, you know, talk about America that, that became, it's, it's famous now. And, but we are a little bit different because we're not exactly outsiders. We live, we had, all three of us had long experiences to live in, live and work inside United States. But now that we have all travel abroad, uh, you know, especially compared to the U.S. experience, to the experience of living or traveling abroad, it's quite, uh, it's quite a contrast. And it's a, it's a very enlightening 
when you are now outside of the United States looking in. So, so what we're trying to do is do like a reverse of that, like kind of outsider looking insider, look at the United States from outside, right? Is that how, how you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because I think that, um, you know, part of the power um, that accrued to, uh, you know, the, the American era, which I think is drawing to a, a close. And every time I say that, people get upset at me or whatever. But I'm like, I'm not saying America's going away. I'm just saying that, I think that, you know, the era where the U.S. sort of led the world sort of without question and, you know, we were um, sort of represented a certain kind of ideal that everyone wanted to uh, or should want to approach. That's, I think that era's closed. It's over. It's not um, just you, team, because recently I just saw a clip on Twitter from one of the, I forgot whether Obama or Clinton administration officials, and she went on air and said, the unipolar moment for America is over. I'm, I'm sorry. Wait, who said that? I have to dig up her name. Uh-huh. She's some. Uh, she's either like a. Uh, um, she either served in the Obama or Clinton administration. Mm. Maybe Obama. Okay. She's just not that old. But she's uh, a no. She, she was an American official, actually. She was American official, right? But, mm. Although yeah. she was speaking with a British accent, so I, she, so it's like you know Anglo-Americans <laughs> transplant, I guess. Uh, but. Mm. But it's, uh, yeah, she says a unipolar moment is over. Um, I mean, that's the most honest assessment, I, I guess, from a former U.S. official I heard. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's obvious. It's obvious. Now we have, like, Houthi rebels in Yemen that's basically dictating the, the flow of the world commerce. And... The U.S. is scrambling with all its military might just try try to keep the Red Sea route open, which I actually don't think they will succeed. So I, I, I'm thinking, yeah, we're, we're looking at a crumbling empires here. Yeah. Uh, you know, and as an American, like, I'm not sad about that because I look at, um, you know, other crumbling empires and the people didn't disappear. They didn't all just die. You know, <laughs> like, they, they're fine. Like, they, you know, in fact, I think the, a lot of the former empires, when they finally start attending to matters at home, I think the the the, the um, quality of life uh, probably improves for a lot of people. You, you know, know? Actually, like, I'd rather I mean, live under post-war England than than, you know, sort of at the sort of at the height of its empire, if I'm just an average British citizen, to be honest, right? The amazing thing is I saw the exact argument argued in New York Times opinion column more than 10 years ago. I, I, I believe it's one of those, I, I don't remember if, if it's Thomas Freeman, but I suspect it was Thomas Freeman who said, you know, the, 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 the people of the British Empire, people uh, from England, from Britain, they actually live better off now than they ever did when they were, uh, you know, still had the British Empire, and and he was arguing that same could uh, go for for Americans, for people inside the United States, and people shouldn't be get too alarmed about the torch of number one power getting passed from U.S. to China. Like ten years ago, you can still print that in in New York Times. That's the yeah. most amazing part to me. It's like now, now if you say that you're just a CCP agent, right? You're just uh, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe when it was more hypothetical, you know, of a of a construct, you could you could get away with it, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think exactly. one of now going back to your point about you know turning the um, t- 
turning the lens around and you know examining the the United States, you know, I think that that is part of the transition, like the cultural transition that I think is being hotly debated inside the United States because I, I keep seeing very similar debates happen over and over again. The the last one I saw that really kind of crystallized this struggle was, uh, I think it was it was John Mearsheimer, you know, the 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 international affairs guy, who I think has a more sort of anti hegemonic view, uh, you know, oh, a way of looking at the world. I, I, I don't I don't know if uh, his and his view is anti hegemonic. I mean, John Mearsheimer. Okay, well, well, let's put it this way: realist. He's yeah, honest. Sorry. He's honest. Uh, or no, no. What, what I meant to say is Ill, illiberal or anti-liberal in a sense, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. um, whereas Stephen Pinker, and I think the guy he was debating was Stephen Pinker, who's a very committed <laughs> liberal, meaning you know the kind of guy who, and the th- this was the this was the debate, right? Was that the modern world was shaped by the European Enlightenment, <laughs> and you know basically like all the all the gains accrued. By civilization over the past, you know, three four hundred years, was a result of liberal enlightenment ideas, which led to and serves as the foundation to modern liberalism, and therefore, you know, like we need to view liberalism, which really is the form a political ideology that's you know exemplified by the West, right? Though you know he's tricky and says that that's not what he means, but that is what he means. There, there's so much, so many layers to that. I'm sorry to interrupt because no, no go ahead. Yeah, I, because there's actually many ideas coming out of the Enlightenment era. Let, let's just like give it. Let's just let's just put aside the argument whether you know the the European Enlightenment ideal was the one that gave birth to the modern world. You know, let's put that aside for a moment. But there are actually multiple many ideas came out of the Enlightenment era and communism actually directly came from those enlightenment ideals. So liberalism, the liberal neoliberal world order, wasn't the only idea. Only idea came out of the enlightenment era, right? There's also communism, which, you know, Steve Pinker probably wouldn't want to concede as like a real possibility for the future of mankind. <laughs> and, yeah, or and, you know, or he'd so, make a, a squirrely little argument saying, "Well, what you know, what I'm trying to say is that the or you know, enlightenment served as sort of like a like a hotbed of ge- you know, generating new ideas, and some of them, you know, f- you know, some of them had their day in the sun and then proved themselves to be corrupt or you know not worthwhile, e.g., communism, right? And then the stuff that's left over is, you know, sort of necessarily the fittest ideas. And so, and his viewpoint is always, of course, that the West is marching in a sort of evolutionary, you know, uh, not even evolution, because evolution doesn't posit progress per se, but it's moving along a sort of uh, arrow of progress. And, and, And in particular, that there's really a universal path uh, towards that, that the U, you know, for example, the UN Declaration of Human Rights is a product of uh, quote Western liberalism. That is a you know okay. So they're having this debate, and uh, what I'm trying to say, and 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 Mearsheimer is pushing back, saying that uh, actually, um, you know, you need sort of a dogmatic foundation that you know rational argument doesn't just 
you you just don't arrive through rational argument at some sort of uh, um, uh, inherent universal agreement. Smart people will, you know, and all he's like, you know, every civilization, every state has smart people. They will be use their, you know, considerable powers of of reasoning and arrive at very very different conclusions uh, and 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 views of the world. And I think one of the things is that Americans, my, my point in going through all this is to say, I think we're having a hard time giving up on the idea that our, it's our, our subjective way of viewing and evaluating the world is unique to us. And mm-hmm. other, you know, other rising states and cultures and civilizations uh, are probably, you know, just because they're, they're smart, they're rational, they're competent, does not mean they're ever going to come around to seeing things the way we do. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I tend to buy that agreement more. I mean, I think there is still overlap. I think there are some universal things, but I think for the most part, uh, Amer- like we're going to have to get, we being Americans, are going to have to get used to the idea that we're not going to set the terms of the debate anymore. That- no, no that, that's, that's a great point because, uh, you know, U.S., uh, or just people in general in the so-called collective West tends to view the world from their own, uh, you know, from their from their own particular cultural background. Um, uh, just just example, uh, you know, I uh, I saw a tweet on uh, on Twitter of somebody posting uh, basically that these young Chinese women are dressing in the traditional Chinese clothes, hanfu, right and and then I, I kind of, I quote tweeted and I, I, I wrote return, except with a U as a V, you know, like. Yeah, return. the return to tradition. Yeah. yeah. Um, like somebody say, oh, you know, but the, the people who use return is like the people who want the non-white people killed. So I'm like, look, I'm not white. <laughs> you know, I, the, 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 the point that I use, I use kind of semi-ironic quote, quote tweet is because you know there are other traditions, there's other cultural traditions, right? Like 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 that that people are are. It's not everything is about the Euro tradition, right? Like when we talk about return to tradition, there's other traditions to return to, and and it's not always about you. It's not always about the West, about the white people. Like I look, I'm not a white person. <laughs> when I use that term, ironically. I meant something else other than the people who, who actually use the use the return non-ironically, and 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 the, 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 this is the same idea about how um, you know what you said about Steve Pinker. It's like people think there can this their so-called universal value or universal path of development is basically their own the Western way of development, the Western liberal way. Uh, of development, but 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 there's we we know obviously that's not true. There's there's multiple paths toward modernity. You know, uh, Japan has its own own way. China is now chasing its own path to modernity. Uh, that that includes revitalization of the ancient Chinese tradition. That was part of it too. So, you know, people people in the West they they, they don't understand that because they're they're just too ignorant, uh, it, particularly I, I'm talking about U.S., 
they're just too ignorant of whatever is happening outside the U.S. borders. I think it's it's a combination of ignorance, though. I think, you know, ignorance is not rare, right? It's not unique. I mean, there's plenty of – there's a lot of ignorance in the world. I think it's a combination of ignorance and also just sort of getting our way for too long, like not having to um, – not having – being in a, in a position to have to consider mm. the views of neighbors – Yes. Um, we don't have any real powerful neighbor neighbors that challenge us. Like you know, we 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 dominate our side of the planet, and um, you know, I I think that's why, uh, you know, American. Someone actually said like Brazil in many ways is a lot like America in this regard. They're very self centered. They you know I, I don't know about that because I don't know much about Brazil, but apparently these guys know Brazil pretty well, and they're like, oh yeah yeah yeah, Brazil is like a Portuguese speaking America in in some ways. And I think they were kind of saying the same thing. Like you're sort of your your own little, you know, you're the 800 pound gorilla in your little corner of the globe, um, and you know you don't have to play nice with others because you're not, you're, you don't. You don't. Whereas you know, in in the other side of the world, you have a lot more countries, you have a lot more neighbors, um, and they've lived next to each other for thousands and thousands of years and have learned to view the world as one that's shared. You know, I don't know if that's part of it too, but well, uh, I, I had I have heard my my American expat friend in China actually said, in many ways, China and U.S. are similar because uh, most of their people are both both people are kind of parochial in in the sense that only care about their own domestic affairs. You know, mostly they're not overly concerned about what happens outside their borders. I think there's something to be said about that. But except even in the case of China, yes, they still have to, they're still confronted with kind of the U.S. and Western cultural hegemony <laughs> that's been imposed. And, and, and they have to deal with that. They have to come to terms with that. And and, and then so, so, so less so if you're a person from, say within the US. Yeah. I think um in in terms of the what we were talking about in the in the Twitter space, uh one thing I've been thinking a lot about uh recently is the you know I you know I think we tend to flatter ourselves by viewing the world through our own strengths. So whatever we're best at Right, we like to see the world as one that, for you know, that particular dimension where we excel, um, just happens to be the most important one in the world, right? Like that, we always accentuate the things that we're good at and and sort of boil everything to that as sort of the most important thing. And I think one thing that the U.S. always leads in is something that we invented, which is this notion of GDP and GDP per capita, which is a you know, it's a really grimy little way of looking at the world, to be honest, right? This counting of national incomes or whatever. Um, but we're so used to ranking the world in econometric terms, you know, like, um, you know, what the GDP per capita is. And I think one thing I noticed for myself, having had the privilege of, like, leaving the country fairly early on, and, and I wouldn't say extensively, but, you know, I've traveled... Um, a decent amount outside uh, of the U.S. is that, like that doesn't that really doesn't capture quality of life. No, yes, it, it, it just really it's a really shitty way of thinking about the world. It and 
because we because U.S. kind of is kind of material materialism. I feel I think it's almost foundational to the U.S. society, right? I mean, you said it yourself. U.S. is just a land where people from all over the world come to make money, right? And and so so we tend to measure everything in material possessions. And uh, but you're right, material possession does not equate to happiness because there there are many countries in the world where the population have far less than what average Americans own in their homes, but they're much more happier. I mean, I'm in Indonesia. I'm witnessing that. I mean, in general, people in Indonesia are materially a lot less well off than your average Americans. But I would say overall, the Indonesian are much happier than, <laughs> than Americans. Right. <laughs> and, and, and there's a reason for that, because, uh, you know, it's not in the in particularly in those countries where like Indonesia, there's more. There's still community. There's still a sense of belonging. Um, whereas you know, in, in the West, where kind of hyper individualism is being put on a pedestal, uh, everything is atomized. So, I mean, you know, for, first the industrialization, the whole industrialization of a society and all that. That uh, uh, you know, the transplanting of people from their home villages to come to U.S. That that itself cut people from their roots, but um, but then, you know, having a society actually based on materialism, um, you know, you further increase the, ad, ad, the atomization of individuals. And that's something our society actually encouraged, right? And so to replace and to replace what you lost through the loss of community, they encourage, you know, hyper consumerism. And, and, and <laughs> that, that, that works just perfectly for a hyper capitalist, hyper consumer society like U.S. But the, the end result is people still not happy. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, nothing exemplified that more for me than like this sort of recent, um, which we had talked about in the space too. Uh, this recent like Twitter spat that lasted for, for days and it was very public between Nate Silver, you know, the guy who like predicts uh, elections and stuff. So he's like a sort of like political numbers guy uh, who he tries to predict elections and from 538. And um, this guy, Will Stansel, who's like some journalist that um, is a, uh, he's a shitlib. You know, he's just like a right down the middle sort of Midwest this is Democrat. Like the, this is like the Godzilla mean let them fight moment, you know, where I'm yeah. just eating my popcorns and enjoying the shit show. <laughs> Two idiots. Yeah. And and they're having this fight and they're fighting over one graph that shows uh, wages broken down by, I think it was like top 1%, top 10%, bottom 10% and everyone else, right? So like four lines, average wages over the last you know 10 years or something and they're sitting here wills will stancil's uh fixating on this chart because he's saying if you look at the chart actually wages for the bottom 10 percent went up uh during biden's uh term so far so why are people not giving him the credit like why is the why are the poll numbers not showing significantly higher uh, approval ratings for him. And, you know, 
uh, and then Nate Silver comes in and he was like, actually, if you look at the line, it's going down. And he was like, no, it's not. It's going up because you're not looking at some fucking, you know, compositional factors. And he's like, fuck your compositional factors. And they're having this complete meltdown over one line because they can't tell whether the line went up or down. Well, guess and what? That- now, none of these people, you know, understand. I, I don't think any 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 of these two people understand the daily realities of the working class American that's struggling at that bottom ten percentile. You know, like the 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 the, the, the fact that they have they are having this big argument based on statistics and data because that's the only thing they, they have they have uh, uh that's the only thing they can base from um it, you know just 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 freaking talking to the people who, who are in the bottom 10 percentile the people who who you know deliver your food or or um uh, 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 serve you in the restaurant or, or you know like i mean it, that's why these people cannot fathom why wouldn't people vote for Biden? Because they're not the people who are impacted. Yeah, these guys, these are guys that are like fighting over a line that is revealing like one statistic, like an, one econometric measure, which actually doesn't very t- tell you very much. Okay, so, okay, wages went up. You have no idea the distribution of those wages. It went up. May, if they're fighting over whether it went up or down, it's like okay, so it's either went up plus three percent or down three percent. I mean, like this thing didn't really budge that much. It's not a big deal, you know what I mean? Like it's not, uh, you know. And they're not, you know, this is just wages. They're not looking at uh, wealth. They're not looking at yeah. They're yeah. They're not looking at the accumulation of wealth, and they're not. You know, obviously, it doesn't even take into account inflation. And you know, let's not talk about CPI. That's a bullshit number. Let's talk about actual living costs right so but um, yeah and i also spoke this at space i mean even for people with jobs who are you know not from the bottom percentile what my understanding is many americans i'm sure they have they share similar experience as me you know i had a you know high high pay a good paying high-tech job but i while i was in u.s i was constantly living in fear afraid of losing my job because you know everything of course is tied to my job my 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 health care my 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 well-being <laughs> my material well-being so so like there's always a, that that fear constantly hanging over my head about losing my job and that 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 economic anxiety i would say it's pretty pers- pervasive in the united states I think so too. And, you know, we don't have, you know, we don't really have like a family or community safety net um, to fall, to fall back on. Um, That's a big problem too, because um, you're, it, 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 yeah, it's very, every household out for themselves. Every man is out for themselves. And that's what we have. That was the ideal, right? You know, the America's ideal is, you know, the little frontier homestead, um, little house on the prayer, right? You, 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 your, you, your, 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 fending for yourself and your family alone in the wilderness. <laughs> it's a jungle out there, and 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 and. But but you know, people and and how can I don't know how they can expect people to be happy with that. Yeah, I feel like there's just some some aspect of like civilization that we're just 
we're just like unaware of here in America or I or or maybe actually we're starting to become more aware of it and that's actually um making it in my opinion actually a very interesting time in America. Uh I you know, I've never seen political debate as introspective and insightful in many ways as it is. Now, you can't obviously pay attention to MSNBC or anything like that. You've got to go <laughs> online and look at alternative media, but uh, you know, in 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 terms of like the the ability or the scope of things that people are talking about, um, you know, it, there is a lot more stuff that's going on that I think is interesting and not this, you know, Will Stansel versus Nate Silver debating <laughs> the slope of one line, right? And an example of that recently, I saw, um, oh God, who was it? Oh, it was, and, and you know, mind you, I'm not. I'm not endorsing any of these people. I'm just saying I think they have interesting conversations, right? Whether whether I agree with them or not is one thing, but you know, it it I, I do have a, a more open mind when it comes to you know where I'm getting you know like what I'm watching, right? And so I do listen to this podcast called All In, which is all these venture capitalist guys. The reason I listen to it is 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 not because I like venture capitalists. But that Silicon Valley does represent an emerging pole of power in the United States mm-hmm. that is not part of the entrenched establishment of the last 20, 30 years in the Democratic Party. It's a new, it's an upstart, very well-funded and wealthy upstart, but it's a challenger in a way. Mm-hmm. And so they have a very interesting, maybe, you know, maybe a little bit too libertarian and pro-capitalist for my taste, but they're at least out there willing to challenge other factions of power. And they had Tucker Carlson on as a guest, who I think has become one of the media stars of this emerging Silicon Valley political faction. And one of the things that they were talking about, I do recommend people go listen to that podcast. It was a re- recent one. But one of the things that he uh, they were talking about was, you know, if you go to Japan, and all these guys are big fans of Japan, you know, not surprising. <laughs> but if you go to Japan, and I noticed this too. In the Western media, they always talk about Japan as being an, uh, an economic basket case, which it is, right? It's got um, its GDP is absolutely stagnant. Its industrial output has collapsed. Um, it has, yeah, all sorts of demographic problems, and there is rising poverty and all this stuff. But they said it's funny because if you go there, it just doesn't feel like it's falling apart. It feels like it's really well run. Things work. People, you know, are, you know, are not, it doesn't seem like they're just falling through the cracks and their society does not seem to be, quote, collapsing the way that the econometric numbers would suggest. And I've always felt, I've always thought that about Japan. I always didn't, you know, like I would find it weird when people say in the Western media, like, oh yeah, Japan is, you know, um, suffering a lost decade and, you know, it's backslid and, you know, everything's crumbling. Okay, fine. People said that also about the pig, the pigs countries uh, in Italy, in uh, Europe, you know, Portugal, Italy, uh, um, and Greece, Spain, Greece, right? Spain, yeah, yeah. And uh, my wife and I recently went to Spain, and you know, I've been hearing that you know you're talking about rampant unemployment, you're talking about all you know, just really, really bad numbers in Spain. And I go, it's, it was great, man. It was great. Everything worked. Every, every the streets were loaded with people. Now I'm not saying that everything's fine in Spain, but there was a quality of 
living and 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 the quality of civic sort of like spirit going on that I did not expect to find in a country that was described as being virtually in an economic depression. Whereas right now, America keeps talking of, you know, the U.S. media keeps talking about how, uh, oh, lately, you know, just the last few weeks, oh, it looks like the U.S. economy is in for a soft landing. Jerome Powell might have pulled off one of the greatest, you know, macroeconomic feats in history. And, you know, the big winner in 2023 is the American economy. And I'm like, okay, yeah, but people are fucking miserable. And if you walk, if you go around American cities, it sure doesn't look that way. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. I, I know exactly what you mean. Like, uh, I mean, I, I visited Japan, uh, you know, once every decade, but Japan may not, uh, I don't know, it might, maybe not dynamic, but it's nice and clean and orderly and, and everything works. And, and, you know, it's, it's nice. Japan is nice. And, and, and at the other side, I'm in Indonesia, you know, it, it could be chaotic. It's, it's, it's third world. It's, but people are happy, you know, people, people here in Indonesia are happy and they're optimistic about, about the future too. There was a sur- global survey that was done, you know, the people of Indonesia are even more optimistic about their future in the next five years than Chinese, you know, that's how optimistic they, <laughs> people are, are here. So it's, it, it really says something about um, kind of, it, it's, it, 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 about the states in the United States where, you know, if you look at the numbers, the GDP numbers, if you look at the GDP per capita, uh, it's great. It's great. You know, it's, it's, but like you said, every, everyone is miserable. Everyone is miserable. Yeah. 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 And I, I, and I don't, you know, and I don't think that the issue necessarily is that our econometrics are wrong. Like, it's not it's not necessarily like oh we're lying about inflation it's actually super high and that's why people are miserable. I think there's there's just a whole other realm of you know uh what would be you know like what would be relevant to being happy uh that just isn't at all even addressed by econometrics. I, you know I mean, what I mean? Like, like, yeah, I mean, like the, the in U.S. it's almost like the, pretend we we don't think the humans are are social animals and need a certain level of community and social familial support. It's uh, um, it, it, but but those those things actually exist in many other other countries outside of U.S. borders. You know, like that that's people. You know, when you see travel when you when you when you travel to these countries where people have very little yet they manage to be happy and and you realize it's not uh you know it's not the material possessions that make you happy yeah and i think you know it's nice to have money but that's not the that's not the necessary ingredient no and and, i mean like and in china too like i I mean i mean i think lately i've seen I I personally think that there are some people who are as a, as a necessary result of sort of fighting against just deep deep levels of bias um, and hostility, frankly, um, against China in the American media. They they also tend to put up, I think, um, what is understandably like I think an overly idealized view or simplified view, I would say. Um, 
of China where, you know, I, I, okay. I, and I brought this up in the space. So I, I only say that. So like, you know, he <laughs> doesn't don't, you know, I'm, I'm telling you this story twice basically, but I remember a, uh, long form commercial that I saw when I was in China, I think in 2018, uh, on TV. And it was a Chinese communist, like youth league, um, sort of advertisement, you know, long form. It's a, it's a piece of state propaganda. And it was very interesting, Carl. I, 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 it really sort of kind of changed my thinking about how things work in, in China and what the role of the party is a little bit. I don't know, maybe, and I'm telling you this because I, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are. But it was, it followed, I think, three young people who had uh, uprooted out of their family, you know, the village in the countryside where they grew up. This is a very common story in China, right? Is young people leaving their family hamlet in the countryside being uprooted to go to one of the big tier one cities. In this case, it was uh, Shanghai. They, they all went to Shanghai to do what, what amounted to pretty menial work. I think one of them became a traffic cop. One of them, I think, was, uh, I forgot what, what, maybe like was uh, working in a, like a, like a mall, you know, not, you know, just sort of menial jobs. And they were not doing, what they weren't doing was idealizing the life of these people. They were not saying that everything was great. They were saying what the point of the program was, was to say that the party was aware that life was really hard for them and that they had made uh, very hard sacrifices in leaving the family and being sort of working as this sort of like alienated labor in this big city where they didn't really know anyone. And the message basically was, we're aware of your plight and the party supports you. Okay, so yes, it's propaganda, but I just thought it was really interesting because that's not at all the kind of sort of pro-Chinese stuff that I see online, which paints these, you know, it has these videos of these hyper-modern skylines, uh, brand new parks, um, amazing high-speed rail and just advancement, advancement, advancement. You know, it seemed to me that that this thing that the that the party put out was aware that there was sort of a there was a there was a there was a downside to this, and that the party was actually pointing to that downside specifically to that downside, and the way a lot of young people got uprooted, and uh, you know don't really have contact with their family on a on a day to day basis anymore. I thought that was really interesting. I I um, just wanted to. Get your yeah. Thoughts I on mean, that because... I think there, there there are different audiences for different messaging, right? I mean, the 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 the, the high the, the amazing high speed rail, the the the, the urban landscape that that that's a, that's a messaging for a certain demographic. But the the this party is directly talking to the people who are experiencing displacement displacement. And working far from home and sacrificing, so so they're, they're addressing different audiences here. But what I what I think is like the same similar uh, level of uh, kind of the service in the West that's used to be provided by like 
organization like churches, you know, like 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 churches used to do that. Uh, some churches still do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, they do do it. I mean, it, it includes uh, in in America. I think uh, we relied more on immigration too, and you know, churches are huge landing spots for recent immigrants um, yes. to help them sort of assimilate into the working 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 life in America. Yeah. Yes. I mean that that's also kind of like the, the the what the proponents of small government in US is oh just let the civics of uh, organization take care of the, these things, you know, the government doesn't have to be part have to participate. We have, you know, that's that's what a a a, a, a civil society is for. But you know, for whatever reasons that is not enough. In, in U.S., that's that's it's 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 things are breaking down because these, uh, um, you know, because well, one thing is the government is not doing its job, <laughs> and 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 the the not the the civil society can't pick up all the slacks. Um, so 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 that's why you get you 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 get up you get a lot of these kind of alienated individuals have no place to turn. You know that this. I mean, okay, like the the, the the most visual aspect difference between U- U.S. and Chinese cities, you know, the presence of homelessness on, on U.S. streets. Like you, you just don't see the same level of homelessness in China. It's not yes, that they don't absolutely. Exist, That's not, but, I mean, I've, I, I totally agree. Uh, yeah, but, but you just it's very different. Yeah. don't see the same level of degradation um, and, and, and rampant homelessness in Chinese cities is because in China, the, you know, whether mental illness or drug abuse, whatever, the family is supposed to take care of their own, you know, that, but U.S. somehow you are just, if you're fucked up, you're shit out of luck. You're out on the street and, 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 and you just fall through the crack of the society. You know, we, we say that you follow the society because you kind of you kind of don't exist anymore. You know, like you're, you you cease to be a functioning member of the society and you, you, you're not even cared about. Uh, yeah, but, they're cast out into the wilderness, more or less. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and in China, to a larger extent, that doesn't happen because like the family take care of their own. Um, but this is something that that Wang Huilin actually talked about in 1990s, his, his, uh, his, his America versus America. He said, the family is breaking down in the United States. And, you know, you can say, oh, that's, that's just like the, the conservative talks about, about uh, U.S. But it's true. It's the, 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 the you know, we, we have, in U.S., there's a over, there's a, you know, we, 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 there's an emphasis on the nuclear family in the United States, right? But um, in China, I guess it's just a different culture because China, you have the extended family. And, and even with cultural revolution, with, with the one-child policy, the extended family's network still very much exists as a support network. You know, you know I, when I go back home, when I go back to China, you know, I have all these aunties and uncles and, 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 and it's, 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 uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's the same in us. No, it's not. Um, and I think the other thing, another big difference that I noticed is that 
Chinese culture tends does it doesn't really have the concept of of having like a break from your parents that we have in the U.S., which is a big thing. Like, it's a big thing in America to um, like leave home and then sort of put your childhood and thus your parents sort of behind you. Whereas with Chinese, I, I, I sense that there's really like uh, no sense of the the you know the day on which you're no longer the um, child of your parents. Yeah, you're no longer the responsibility of your parents. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's a continuous relationship, and um, you know, even into when you're old. Yes. Like both, like you and your parents are old. Like like that's me now. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> You know, I'm an old guy, and they're even older. You know, so um, that's a big difference. I I, I feel it, it, one. In fact, I think for me, being you know somewhat bicultural, right? I grew up. My parents are immigrants um, from Taiwan, and they're uh, so you know we had a very Chinese. I had a very Chinese style family life. Uh, one of the big differences I've always noticed between people living in a Chinese cultural context and people living in an American cultural context is the, the lack of resentment and awkwardness towards their own parents and the rest of their family. Whereas Americans, it's built into us to just not want to be near family. Like it's a chore. We don't, you know, it doesn't, we, we would rather, it's like being in school. Like we would just rather be somewhere else. (laughs) You know, it's so weird. It's such a drastic difference. And I never fully understood why. But I do think it's a cultural thing. It's like a cultural programming for us to sort of detest our own family as being very like, um, like stuffy and they're always in your business and you don't have free space. And the dream of your, you know, every kid is to get the hell away from the, the parents and basically never come back. And, and then of course, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of cultural encouragement of this idea that your parents fucked you up and they may have abused you in a way, but you didn't know, you know, like there's just like this real fetish for like hidden abuse that that your parents, you see that in a lot of diaspora writing too, you know, (laughs) you know, like much resentment against the parents and it's so manufactured. Yeah. And and it's, of course it's like, uh, you know, from, from a perspective of a Chinese parents, it's like, damn, why are you so ungrateful? You know, <laughs> I freaking, yeah. I freaking raised you, sent you to school, so you got good education, and then so you assimilated to the to American society. Now you turn around and shit on us. Um, uh, but but yeah, that's just that's just American way, man. That's a part of the <laughs> assimilation to the U.S. Yeah. mainstream. Means you shit on your parents, on your immigrant parents. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. It's learned. I mean, it's not like, you know, Chinese parents are perfect or anything. I'm just saying that um, it's not so encouraged to uh, to have this like hatred of your own family that we have in America, you know, and and then now there's like a proliferation of, oh, this like liberals love talking about this, about how awkward family reunions and uh, like Thanksgiving as, as a form of family reunion is. And they're like, they'll put out articles like, how to make Thanksgiving less awkward. That's that's you know, so you know. weird. That's just so weird, especially when like they only do this once a year, right? I mean, like, because I I remember when I was growing up uh, in China in 1980s, 
every New Year, uh, Chinese New Year, my grandma would take me to go visit relatives. So like each day, um, each day we will visit a home of a relative's family. And my, my, my grandma has a lot of relatives. So we will spend like 15 days, <laughs> two weeks to visit. <laughs> yeah. I, I loved it. I loved it. You know, yeah. I love to go into all these my relatives, family, you know, like meet meet uh, uh, new people, and, and 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 it was great. It was like for for my grandma was a um, way to reaffirm. Like that's the way she always done, but it's all, also to re, reaffirm the the familial bonds. But for me, for little kid, for as me as a little kid, that was that was great. That was awesome. You know, there's food. <laughs> there's there's all these people. Uh, adults and kids around. I I, yep. I, I yep. really enjoy that experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was like what going back to Taiwan was like for me as a kid. Was you know, okay, we have like three weeks. It's very you know rare to back then anyway to be able to like go. So you know they had to pack in like everyone. So we didn't do any tourism when I was a kid. Like when we went to Taiwan, I didn't know any. You know, we didn't go to like the. We didn't go to like the places you're supposed to hit up. In fact, I don't even know where you're supposed to go. <laughs> all we did was just go, like you said, we would just go to like different houses and apartments all over the city. And then they would sit down and they would just shoot the shit and tell stories to each other. Yes. For hours. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, and I loved it because um, I was like, yeah, we don't really do this in America. Like, I don't really, because they would tell you like, oh, this is how you're related to this person. And most yeah. of the time we're not related. It's like a it's it's like a quasi family relationship. Like yes. you know what I mean? It's like it's like think of this person as your aunt. That's how close yeah. we are. You know that kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah. and I was like, "Whoa, shit. Mom, mom and dad have friends." <laughs> you know? Like they, <laughs> they got, oh, I didn't know. Like I I just, you know, that's cool, you know. Um it's nice to see that uh they have they know a lot of people. Yeah. Whereas in America like, you know, it was like the same four people over and over again. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- that's that's definitely missing. I, and when I go back to when when you know when I visit my wife, she has a lot of family where she grew up in Guangzhou, and it's like that. You know, we're just like we don't really do any sightseeing there. Like we're just taking the bus all over the city and like visiting this this real aunt or this fake aunt. And you know, they're all eyes, right? <laughs> and um. And it's really fun, you know, yeah. like it's it's yeah. it, it, it's a side of the experience of traveling that, you know, unless you're either half family there or you're married to someone who has family there, you know, you're not going to see that side of it. And yeah. that's everything to me. That That's the most important. That's where you're going to see the kind of differences, I think, that like a Wang Huining was able to pick up on even in 1991, which was sort of like the peak year for the United States and neoliberalism. Like the wall came down. America won the world. Basically in 1991, we were like the fucking undisputed champs of the world. That was was a year. That was year of the end of the history. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I think a lot of the people in power right now, their heads are still in 1991. Yes. You know, like a lot a lot of the people were around in 1991. I mean, Joe Biden was around in 91 for sure, you know. Oh yeah. That that's back when Joe Biden was still coherent. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And and I think he's still kind of I think we're stuck in a 1991 mindset. Um but I I do find it really um surprising and I think a lot of people online 
who saw, you know, like there was a tweet that went around the, the 1991 tweet, right? Like I think Haas or someone had like summarized um, what Wong had written in 1991. And a lot of people who are not familiar with America versus America were saying, dude, he wrote that in 91. <laughs> what? What is he a fucking prophet? You know, like how could he, how could he, because as an American, like we would, it's very hard to believe that someone could look at America in 1991, especially someone from China. You're two years after Tiananmen. Like, this is not a good time for China. It's not a secure time. for. You're watching the USSR crumble before your eyes. I mean, it's not a good time to be a socialist country, is it? Yeah. But able to pick up on the seeds of the destruction of the, you know, uh, you know, of that, of this American order. And he was absolutely correct. Yeah. You know, and, but, but in a way I kind of, uh, I kind of see where he's getting because even in '91, when I was traveling yeah. and going around and uh, you know seeing seeing family in, in in Taiwan or traveling even to Europe, uh, you know there there's there's marked differences between European society and American society. Even in '91, '92, when we were told like this is the greatest place on not just on Earth but in history, I was like, eh, I don't know about that. Well, well th- this yeah. is uh, this. So just going off of tangent a little bit. Now Wang Huilin, the, the author of America vs. America, is one of the most powerful men in the Chinese political world, right? So, but you don't find the same level of knowledge about China in the top U.S. leadership today. Not even close. I mean, I yeah, mean who, it, who, can, yeah. who can claim that kind of level of deep understanding of China in Biden administration, you know, Jake Sullivan, I don't think so, you know, and, and nobody. So. <laughs> yeah, nobody. No, I mean, their, their, their point is just to see China as a challenger and to say, okay, like, how do we, um, like, what kind of tactics can we employ slow to slow them down? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're like Wiley Coyote, you know, trying doing whatever. Everything <laughs> blows up in our faces. You know, it's like it's a joke. The whole thing's hilarious. Uh, that's the best. That's the best description of the U.S. Empire tactics so far. That's what it is. Wiley it's Wiley Coyote. Coyote. Yeah, oh, everything we God. try blows up right in our faces. <laughs> you know, Gina Raimondo. How is that not a Wiley Coyote cartoon? You know, like. <laughs> uh, but she's she's doubling down. She was upset. She was upset. On TV, that Huawei released their latest consumer phone with her visit. First of all, you are freaking Commerce Secretary of the United States. Why do you care about a consumer phone release in China so much? You know, like you kind of tied your whole dignity to this freaking consumer phone. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah. You know, uh, T- Tucker Carlson said this in that pod um and, and and again, I do think it's worth Americans like listening to to people that are not in your political spectrum. Tucker Carlson is a right wing demagogue. Yes, I, I would agree with that assessment of him, by the way. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have his finger on the pulse of what's going on. That's what makes him an effective demagogue. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And so I think it's worth listening to what he's saying. They asked him, these guys on the All In Pod asked him and they were like, what do you think is the number one issue political issue of our day you know like what 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 is the press most pressing thing in going on like you know all all around like what is the number one issue and he said national cohesion 
And he said that, um, you know, a country is more than an economy. A country is more than um, an election or, you know, even a political system. Um, There is something that needs to be shared um, by the people. Like they, they all have to have some sort of common understanding of what it means to be an American. And I, I think that's correct. I also think that that's anathema to liberals. Liberals are of the view that we, we are technically members of the same, like we are technically ruled by the same government and therefore we do share a set of like government services, but I don't have anything to do with you and you have nothing to do with me. Um, and, and, and one thing he added to that was, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things I don't like about China. China's uh, not my cup of tea. Right. But he said, I do admire the fact that they understand this. They seem to understand this. Well, I mean, um, th- this is a diff- like difference between China and United States. China is a civilization state that stretched back thousands of years. U.S. is this frontier land settled by immigrants, right? Like you, like you said, people come here to make money. What's the, what's the national cohesion? That, what's, what's the commonality that we all share? We all came to U.S. to make money. And once that, that buck stops, you know, what, what, what's there to tie all of us together? <laughs> when, the, when, the, when the whole prosperity project stopped working. Um, and and, and the, the thing is about the, 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 the kind of the difference in China is, you know, the Confucian worldview, the state start with family. You know, you, 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 you first you put your family order and then your aspiration as a Confucian official is once you put your, yourself in order, once you put your family in order, then you try to put the state in order. So in, in, in Chinese perspective, the state is, a, is an extension of your family. But in U.S., <clears throat> like we said, you know, the family itself is breaking down. You know, what, what, what is a state? Then, like, state is supposed like supposedly is this kind of impersonal um, thing that that kind of mysteriously just make everything work, right? Provide services, right, right, and, yeah. and, and 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 but but that's not something you you necessarily feel allegiance to. <laughs> you know, do I feel allegiance to the post office? Of course not, right? I mean, the the, the yeah, I. I know what Tucker Carlson is saying, but I don't. I don't see any remedy for that. I don't see any kind of. Uh, oh yeah, no, he doesn't either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no. He, he, he's like, I don't know what the remedy is. I'm not sure there is one. Yeah, um, I don't. But I don't he said it is, it is the 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 number one most pressing problem in the United States, and he says that because he's not a liberal, and a liberal liberal will not say that because a liberal doesn't. Um, you know, a liberal doesn't like the idea of a national character identity, other than, uh, 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 other than sort of accepting, you know, life within this economic order as a sort of like universal state, uh, a sort of like a universal well, resting state that we're all supposed to eventually evolve into. Well, I mean, liberal don't like. <clears throat> don't like national uh, things anyway because liberals are usually backers of empire. You know, for, for, for the backer of empire, national cohesion is actually anathema, right? 
to the the imperial project, everything is universal. You 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 have this one empire that rules them all, right? Mm-hmm. So all these national boundaries, these these things that they don't mean anything for for the liberals and to the liberal mindset. But yeah, but the, yeah, the 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 you know it's I don't know, man. I I I I yeah, I don't think there's a good answer for you know what. What can remedy the ills of America? Maybe there's none. There's <laughs> because the, the, the U.S. cultural DNA is just so different from, say, China, right? It, yeah. It, well, it here's the thing. I mean, people have posited that argument before. I, I know you. Uh, uh, no, I don't think you said this, but I think some people I know, like quite a few people, have said, like, look, I mean, the U.S. is just very young, right? Like, it's just a very new. It's a very new society that um, just hasn't had time to bake and form the way that, you know, civilization states like China or, or Russia or, you know, places have had uh, Turkey, Turkey, even Europe, you know, I mean, are, is has had this time. Um, but but I kind of disagree to an extent because I do think that the U.S. had periods of greater national cohesion mm-hmm. than others. Yes. Uh, you know, I think America in the 1940s was probably very different than America in the 2020s. Mm-hmm. And um, and and it, so it's I, I, like I, I think there was a time if you go back and you look at what political and social commentators of the day were saying in the 19 the first half of the 20th century before liberalism really started to take hold, I guess, in the mid to late 60s and and after that, um, I think these were these questions were sort of for at the forefront, much more so than we would assume now. That they really did care a lot about things like national identity, and 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 they were thinking about that hard. And it, it even showed up. I and I talked about this all the time. It shows up in in your aesthetics, in your architecture, in in your clothing, and in the sort of like material aspects of your culture. They they they're looking for co- coherence. They're looking for those things to be an expression of the national identity, which is why I think you see now, um, as an expression of Chinese national identity, uh, the researches of aesthetics like Hanfu, right? Like that that is a sort of natural um, emanation from this kind of thinking. Uh, but you don't, you know, that's the thing, like. In the U.S., like we don't really have that anymore, or all of it is fake. It's like all co-opted, and it's all trading on nostalgia, mm. and it, you know they're trying to sell overpriced shit to you, right? <laughs> but there isn't, you know, yeah, yeah, you know. But they're not, or or they're just retreading old shit that, like, you know, it's just kind of like just making you nostalgic for your, for the father you never had, you know, <laughs> like, you know, and and um, it's um. How do I put it? I don't think, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think America was doomed to this. I think that we have in the past been quite conscious of this need for national cohesion. But the what I suspect, my, my theory is that the demands of our capitalist system, the demands of our of our economic order uh, were, was just too strong. We were just yes. economically way too strong. And it was like, we f- it, we, it was like, we we were an kind of an idiot that came and for some reason was able to pull the 
sword out of the stone. But in fact, we could not handle that power. <laughs> and our our industrial, the industrial miracle that happened here consumed us. We we couldn't handle. It was like a nuclear meltdown. Like it it, it was the 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 intensity of our economic development corrode like we we didn't stand a chance basically and i think i'm starting to think of china more as whether china has the social cohesion to undergo an america-like economic supernova and not get melted down by it and that's what i was getting from that communist youth league tv program was i i felt that there was a consciousness about this they understood that See, see, this is a difference, right? In China, they they have a government that at least understand the problem and they, they try to address it. Um, in United States, we all know there's a problem, but our government could, could care less about it. You know, they have more top priorities, like keep funneling money into the military industrial complex, right? And and th- th- because. U.S. is basically a uh, a society organized to serve the oligarchs in in charge, and 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 we're, whereas China is quite different, that the oligarchs are not in charge over there. They, they can't because the Confu- traditionally the Confucian uh, bureaucrats always keep the merchant class in check, and now today the, the Communist Party they keep the keeps the capitalist class in check. But in U.S. it's it's unrestrained. Uh, you know, hyper capitalism, right? So, so everybody, money is all that matters, and and everybody is free for the pursuit of money, and and then you have all the the the, the, the government officials are basically sold to the highest bidder. So, so we, we 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 I think a lot of people are aware there's a problem in America, but the problem is our government governing elite. Uh, one, they don't care. Two, they they don't have the tools to address it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think they care anymore. I think they're. I guess what my my uh, I'm pushing back on the idea that they never care. I think they did. They did know this. Uh, I'm seeing more evidence of this. Like, for example, the other day, uh, I went on a lark. I started researching um, this. Uh, this it's the it's it's the number one corporate law firm in America. It's called Wachtell Lipton. Right, it's a it's a it's a very very renowned boutique corporate law firm in America, and uh, one the the guy Martin I was just fascinated by these guys I don't know why, and I was reading up on this guy Martin Lip, Marty Lipton, and you know one of the founding partners, and he he's a legend in sort of like corporate law and uh, just sort of like corporatism overall. And I was reading up on him, and he's very interesting. So he did. A, he was a, a also a, a legal scholar, and he was doing a lot of work apparently on the idea. He came up. His idea was that the capital was so concentrated in America through the types of transactions that he was basically inventing uh, or or advising on. You know the modern. Uh, takeovers the 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 creation of these massive corporate conglomerates that was the big thing that was going on in the 80s the era of uh corporate consolidation and his point was that 
and he was writing this in like the 70s, that the accumulation of capital, the concentration of capital into just a few firms made the idea of like uh, of of virtuous market competition uh, basically a myth. And private capital was so powerful and so concentrated that you be- you needed to have government step in uh, to create the proper incentives for the allocation of capital in a way that would actually benefit society. And I was like, dude is rediscovering communism. <laughs> Marty Lipton of Wachtell Lipton is like independently discovering communism, <laughs> you know? I, you know, I, I think a lot of people look at this and, and, and he's, he is, uh, you know, he, he's a, he's a high priest of capitalism and he was coming to the same conclusions. You know, I was well, very, I was very blown look, away. Teen, I mean, there was a period that the, there was a progressive era, right. And there that accumulated in the new deal. There was a point where even the U S elite recognized that they need to do something. They need to, um, they need to reform. Right, they need to, you know, cut back on their takes, share larger portion of the pie with the working class, so there could be a national project, so there could be social cohesion, so there could be the America could be transformed, right? But we are nowhere close to that. You know, remember I had interviewed Peter Turchins. Peter yes. Turchins basically yeah. in his book argued, right. 2020 is going to be a turbulent decade. We're looking at two scenarios, uh, you know, looking at U.S. past. We're looking at one scenario where the elite recognize they have to they have to make some compromises. They have to they have to share some of the wealth um, that could lead to you know a second New Deal, or you know you you just have you know the the, the last time when there was no compromise was civil war, right? <laughs> I don't yeah. think we're going to have a civil war, but I think we're just going to have to continue decline. And, 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 and it, uh, it, it, no, yeah. it really, I think it, I, I listened to that. I would love, you should, we should, I would love if we could get him uh, on the space sometime. We should do it. We should do it. Yeah. He's great. He has, um, I think it's a, a fascinating theory because it, it, I kind of feel it just sort of like, it dovetails with everyday lived experience in the United States. First of all, his whole prediction about the 2020s was fucking dead on. That's that's a very <laughs> like specific you know prediction that was absolutely true. But the other you know this idea of the surplus of elites and stuff. I mean, like it really does feel like the United States is like devolving into a kind of kleptocracy where you know everyone's just trying to steal the national wealth and you know we're no longer trying to generate and create wealth. We're just taking what we've built and trying to take what we can while the getting's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and 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 a lot of the growth areas now are are really about that. It's really about, you know, we're getting into stuff like gambling. We're getting into stuff like you know, there's just a lot of gambling in the United States right now, and we're we're driven by things like that where, um, we're tr- we're just trying to squeeze juice out of like a dead fruit where you know we're not trying to create anything new we're just trying to collect hidden fees yes so that we can you know just take phantom profits john just joined us hey john you there john hey Hey. apologies 
Yeah. No, I'm just going to listen. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so terribly late. But uh, you guys just, just go ahead. I'm going to listen and, and, and say. But uh, yeah, this is a great conversation. This is the end of part one of a two-part podcast. John joins us for part two. And if you want access to that, you can go to patreon.com slash planning mag to support us and get access to all our books.